uh, today we're going to delve into uh, a pretty famous story in uh, John chapter 5. If you'll turn with me to chapter 5, we'll start with verse 1. It's also on your listening guide, so you can just look at it from there if you'd like. Uh, Verse 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. To put some context to this scripture, we're not really sure which, uh, which feast this is. And there's an indefinite amount of time between the end of chapter 4 and the start of chapter 5. Verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. So here we are in Jerusalem and uh, Jesus is headed into one of the corridors of the city. This verse is actually prophetic. You can kind of see, I'm not sure uh, if that, if that gate up there, that little hole, if that's the, the sheep gate above the, the five roof colonnades. But you can see that, uh, that this verse is prophetic. Jesus is entering in, uh, into Jerusalem through a certain gate, the sheep gate. Anybody guess what the sheep gate is for? Uh, to bring the sheep into the Jerusalem? Yeah, you're right. It is. And uh, so this, this gate is prophetic because the sacrificial lamb the sheep, the sacrificial sheep come in to the city to go to, uh, to be sacrificed. And so they enter in through this and it's prophetic because Jesus, as you know, as we'll read later, if you keep reading John, that Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. He is the sacrifice for all mankind. He's the lamb of God. So inside the gate, there are these two pools, one to wash the sacrificial animals. And the second one is for the people. And there's so much uh, significance in these scriptures. When you look at the context of the verses that you're reading, I realize in studying that when the Bible is using the number five, that it's referring to undeserved favor or grace. So I'm going to give you a, a few examples of that. In Genesis chapter 43, verse 34, we read uh, about Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers. And went through some bad things, you know, went into prison, all kinds of different things. But he ended up being the number two man in Egypt, the governor of Egypt. And while he was there, he convinced the Pharaoh to store up a bunch of grain. And there was this, uh, the land was plentiful for seven years, it says. And he convinced the Pharaoh, hey, let's store up all this grain in all these cities. And uh, the Pharaoh was, was, was down with that. So he did. And then there was this great famine. And so it says, the Bible says that, people from all over the world were coming to Egypt to get some of this grain, to make bread. And so this verse actually starts out with, with Joseph doling out the Pharaoh's stash, his good stash. And he's actually doling it out to his brother, Benjamin, who Benjamin doesn't even know that he's Joseph's brother. So we'll, we'll start here. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as theirs, as much as theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. It says that Benjamin got some undeserved favor. It's repeated in Genesis chapter 45, verse 22, where it says, To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. The number five symbolizes undeserved favor, specialized favor. If we look at the Lord's Supper, the fifth clause says, Give us this day our daily bread. Again, that's in Matthew chapter 6, verse 11. Again, undeserved favor. So let's go back to John chapter 5. 
And we're talking about the five roofed colonnades or porches. Verse three says, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Under these five porches lay the invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for undeserved favor. The setting for this story on these porches reminds me of a time I went to Atlanta, Georgia. And um, eight years ago, I, went to, I flew into Atlanta for a Homeland Defense Department course. And I, I was waiting to, to catch a bus into Alabama, but I had a few hours. And if you know me, I like, to, I like to travel and I like to see different things. And one of my things that I like to do when I go traveling is to go to a hard rock cafe. Right, wife? I like to go to all the hard rocks. I want to mark it off my list. And so I go into Atlanta. I take the MARTA, the subway, train, whatever you call it, into uh, downtown Atlanta. And I go to the hard rock. And when I'm done, I decide, you know, I want to walk around a little bit. I have some time. And so I start walking and I see the Coca-Cola building. And I know when you go to Atlanta, you're supposed to go to the Coca-Cola building. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's something to see. So on my way, I'm walking there. And between me and the Coca-Cola building is the city block. It's like a park of cement. And in this city block is got to be the Guinness Book of World Records number of invalid, blind, and lame and paralyzed people bunch of homeless people, sick people. And uh, I'm not really afraid of, of people so much. And in urban areas, I'm, uh, you know, I'm just, it's just not my thing. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty fearless when it comes to that. I went to the police academy, you know, and I just kind of lost that fear probably to my fault. But it was enough that I didn't want to go to the Coca-Cola building because I didn't want to cross through these people. Just another reason why I'm not Jesus. You know, Jesus purposely walks into Bethesda uh, around these invalid people, these blind, lame, and paralyzed people that I would probably ignore, that I would walk by and, you know, kind of be like, ooh, you know, I don't think I want to go by there, you know? Maybe uh, feeling a little uncomfortable. Uh, maybe because I'm the only white man in downtown Atlanta. Seriously. But Jesus wasn't that way. Thank you, Lord. So uh, we'll, we'll start up again with verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So we can imagine that this one man uh, is upwards of the age of 38. He's at least 38, maybe somewhat older. I don't know, but his parents probably started bringing him to this pool when he was a child. So for 38 years, he's sitting there and... Uh, the people that he's sitting there with uh, make up his comfort zone. They're the people that he's most comfortable with. I don't know about you, I'm 33 years old. And the people in my life that I've known the longest, man, they're my family. My friends, I, I don't want to lose those friends. Those are, those are my close, close, close friends. I love these people. And I can't imagine, you know, a man sitting in Bethesda with, for 38 years, possibly, up to upwards of maybe four decades with these people and w- not wanting to uh, still be their friend, still be their family, still be a part of them. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? So th- Jesus knew this guy had been there a long time, whether it's, you know, just uh, uh, just being, you know, part man, part God, that he just knows things, or 
maybe he was recognized there, you know, for over the years. He's just, just one of the guys who's just been sitting there forever. I, I don't know. It's not really clear. But he's been possibly sitting there for, for four decades. Jesus asked a simple but completely deep question. Do you want to be healed? Have you ever noticed that Jesus, much of what Jesus, uh, Jesus' teachings consisted of deep questions as much as or more than statements? Matthew chapter 16, 15 says, who do you say that I am? That's Jesus asking a question, speaking to the disciples about who he really is. Matthew 5, 47, Jesus asks, what more are you doing than others? Another question to the disciples to distinguish the difference between Christians and the Pharisees. What more are you doing? Mark 3.33, who are my mother and brothers? Referring to his group as, as being just as close to him as his family. Mark 10.51, Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? He's talking to a blind man, wondering if this guy wants to be healed, similar to this story that we're doing today. These were teaching moments, not simply questions. Jesus knew like a true teacher that students learn just as much from the questions we ask them than the information we impart to them. Jesus asked this invalid man, do you want to be healed? Other translations say, do you want to be made whole? And to be made whole is to experience life more abundantly, the gift of life. You see, this man has been given an opportunity to experience a whole different life. Grace walks up to him, taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, this isn't it. Do you want more? Do you want to live in my fullness? Are you ready to be made whole? It's kind of funny. Here's the Lamb of God walking through the sheep gate and the scriptures don't say that anybody recognizes him. The invalid man doesn't ask for mercy. For that matter, the scripture doesn't say that anybody asks for Christ's mercy at this pool. Many of you have read this passage before and you know this man's fixing to be healed. And it's funny, after this man is healed, still nobody asks Jesus for his mercy. Nobody. Here this man's been sitting here forever, possibly 38 years, gets up and walks. Some translations say that he's paralyzed and everybody just stays quiet. Nobody, nobody's looking for that. Why? Because they're all comfortable sitting in their own mess. Sound familiar? We'll get back to that. Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Before we move on, you may have noticed that I skipped verse 4. And the reason why I skipped verse 4, you can look in your Bible and see if there's a verse 4 in your Bible. My Bible doesn't have verse 4. And the reason that it's not in there is because it's believed that verse 4 was added after the book was actually written. So it's omitted from uh, lots of different translations. What we see in uh, verse 7 hints at what verse 4 was saying. Verse 7 tells us about a story or a legend that says that the pool of Bethesda was occasionally stirred by the Lord or an angel's foot. An angel would come down there, stir his foot in the, in the water, and the first person to get into the water was supposed to be healed. That was the legend, the story. Verse 4 made it sound like the legend was true, 
but it, but it wasn't because what actually the pool of Bethesda was, was uh, fed by an underground spring. And when that underground spring would fill up, it would cause a disturbance in the water. I don't know how it did. Maybe it moved. I don't know. I'm just going to say, because that's what I like to do. I like to make sounds. So this guy, this invalid man, he, he honestly, he, he must believe this because in verse seven, he says, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. So he believes this. You have to wonder about this guy. Let's say he's been coming here for 38 years. He's pretty bad off. If in 38 years, he hasn't been the first one to get down into the water. Not that it would have mattered, but he's not fast enough. And so basically this guy doesn't stand a chance. He's at this point physically defeated. And he just admitted to Jesus that he's emotionally defeated, right? He's throwing excuses at Jesus. What's the definition of a fool? Somebody that does something over and over and over and over again, expecting a different result. This guy wasn't getting it. He's showing up at this pool day after day, year after year. But we can learn from this guy. Consistency in itself isn't a virtue. That's, one, that's on your listening guide. Consistency in itself isn't a virtue. It's not, that's not what this slide says, but it says that on your, uh, on your uh, listening guide. He's been going at it, this whole thing, the wrong way. Verse 8 says, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And in verse 9, and at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you've probably heard this story several, several times. And you've undoubtedly been asked, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be made well? Well, do you? We can learn from this invalid man that being consistent wasn't the right path because this man was consistent, consistently doing nothing. We need to venture out of our comfort zones to experience the fullness of Christ. This man showed up day after day, year after year for an impossible chance at a healing. And we do the same things. We become Christians and we start developing a comfort zone in our Christianity. A lot of us never experienced life in all of its fullness its abundance we need to try a different approach we need to change things up if you're the guy that feels the obligation to blurt out something at the drop of a hat you might need to try holding back let someone else do the talking for a change on the other hand if you're the one who stays silent and never says a word then you need to speak out more let your voice be heard the point is is to dare to do things differently Dare to alter your routine, change your diet, cultivate new friendships, break old habits, learn new techniques for relating to others more effectively. This can be an important first step towards experiencing new and more abundant life. We need to step out of our comfort zones. If you didn't already put that on your listening guide, we need to step out of our comfort zones. I can't help but think of this guy sitting in his own mess for who knows how long. And the answer coming up to him and offering him a way out. And he doesn't even recognize it. He doesn't even recognize this is the son of God before him. This is my mess. How many of us are giving excuses to God? God, I can't go to Haiti. I get two paid weeks of vacation each year. And I can't waste one week on that. 
God, I, I can't go to Haiti and leave my spouse, my kids for a week. I mean, what is he going to eat? She can't even put gas in the car. God, I, I, can't, I can't talk to that person over there about you. I mean, I don't even know them. What are they going to think of me as I come and talk to them about you? They're going to think I'm crazy. We just keep offering excuses, excuses, excuses. The invalid man can look different. He might be the guy sitting in his house, not working because he's able to collect disability from the government. He may not want to be healed because that's his paycheck. This allows him to not have to work. I'd rather not be healed. I can deal with this. The invalid man might look like a widow, just comfortable being alone, not wanting to get out of a comfort zone. The invalid man might look like a member of our church, comes to church, parks in the, the same spot every Sunday, comes in, gets a cup of coffee, grabs a donut that Ann Colander so graciously brought that morning, talks to the same people, shakes the same people's hands, comes in, waits till 1045, grabs the same seat every week, comes in, listens to the service, even writes down something on the back of the registration card, jets out at 12.05. Doesn't sound that bad, really. I mean, that's most of us, right? But is it experiencing life abundantly? Is there more? I think yes. If you're comfortable right now, you don't get it. If you're comfortable in your walk with God, you're pretty much walking dead. We should never, never be comfortable. If you don't feel a struggle or a longing to know Christ more or a deep urging inside of you to do more, something isn't right. You've become complacent. How many people today are, are like this invalid man sitting by a pool waiting for God to show mercy, yet they're not willing to surrender his, to his will. I asked earlier, after Jesus healed this invalid man, why then did the people not see that and ask Jesus to do the same? Why did they not beg Jesus for his mercy, for healing? Why? Because they're, willing to rise and t- they're not willing to rise and take up their bed. Do you know what the bed is? The bed is the bed of ease. We're so attached to the bed of ease in this world that we're not willing to rise and take up our bed and walk under the mercy of Christ. We Americans are walking around in our comfortable pants. Last week we learned that Joel, John Colander has these lip sleep pants, right? The lip, and it's ripped down the, the left leg. And John wears these at the house because they're comfortable, right? Right on. He's so comfortable in these pants at, at home, and we as Christians walk around in our sleep pants. We're comfortable, and we're thinking that if we show up to church each Sunday, that we've done our good deed for the week, and that God is pleased with us. We're willing to be saved in our own way, but we're not willing to conform to God's way. What that is, is us not surrendering to God. We're too comfortable in our own salvation. So much so that we're relying on ourselves for our salvation. We think our Christianity doesn't go any further than saying a simple magic prayer. That's it. That's all I had to do. I'm saved. 
Let's go live like hell. Or maybe we say the right things and we do the right things. But we're really just sitting by the pool with each other, waiting for our Savior, hopeless, sick, invalid, and we stink. But we're comfortable because we're in it together. And we're not asking for healing. We're not asking to be made whole. We're too busy complaining and socializing with our comfortable friends. It's easy to sit by the pool and give excuses about why we're not living abundantly because we're comfortable. And I don't want to. I read these passages passages, and it reminds me that I don't need to be so comfortable in my Christianity, in my life, that I'm not willing to get up, take my mat, and walk. I don't need to be so comfortable in my walk with God that I observe the Son of God healing somebody on the other side of the pool and I don't even recognize Him. And I don't even desire the wholeness that He has for me. What do you need to stir up in your life that has you so comfortable that you don't even recognize the Son of God on the other side of the pool? What needs to happen in your life that you recognize that this isn't it? This isn't the fullness of God. What's it going to take? When are you going to surrender to God? You can say the magic prayer and it not mean jack squat. You need to surrender to God. Today is the day to take up your mat and quit sitting by the pool and get up. No, literally, get up. Everybody stand up. I want you to say this with me. God, I'm tired of sitting by the pool. I know you have more for me. And I surrender to you. Let's pray. Father, we want more. Help us to step out of our comfort zones and desire what you have for us. Break us out and help us live according to your will not our own. Help us live for you. And I ask you, Lord, to help us recognize when and where we're moving and help us desire to be a part of it. We surrender to you. Amen. All righty. You can sit down. Y'all have registration cards that uh, came with your, uh, your listening guide? If you would, fill that registration card out. And then on the back, if you'll do something for me, um, I want you to answer this question. Are you willing to step out of your comfort zone and take up your bed and walk with Christ? And if you're willing to, to do that, to rise and to take up your bed and walk, I want you to put a yes on the back of the card. It's just kind of just a, a reassurance that you're willing to do it. Again, I said, if you're comfortable in your walk with God, you're not getting it. I don't want to be that invalid man.